Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Growth must be seen as something we do as a team. I mean, there's so there's almost no work that you can imagine that isn't collaborative. So I felt that we needed a growth mindset concept that was more collaborative in the same way that psychological safety is. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. This is another special Wednesday morning episode brought to you by our sponsors, Jeremy Clevenger Fitness and the Sasquatch Flag Company. Both of these sponsors help me bring these shows to you each and every week, so I encourage you to click on their links below and check them out. I have another great show lined up for you today, but before we get started, I just want to remind you to check out the leadership books I've written on either Amazon or my website, johnsrunny.com. This year, I'm offering a new way to purchase all of my books for a discount. I've bundled the books into what I call the Qualified Leadership Series, and you get all three books for 15% off the individual prices. This offer is only available on my website, so check it out if you're looking to step up your leadership game this year. Also, I want to remind you that Deep Leadership is ranked as a top 100 management podcast in the U.S. and the U.K. And I want to thank each and every one of you for listening in each week and sharing these episodes with your friends. You have helped this podcast grow into a top performing show. So thank you very much. Well, that is it. Today, we're going to be talking about the idea of applying a growth mindset based on psychological safety to business leadership. And this new concept is introduced to us by my guest, Skip Bowman. Skip is the author of a brand new book called Safe to Great, The New Psychology of Leadership. And now in this book, Skip demonstrates how psychological safety can lead to significant business growth. And I love this conversation. It is such an interesting concept, and I know you will as well. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Skip Bowman. Skip is an author, consultant, and keynote speaker. He is Australian-born and based in Europe. He has worked with global organizations for over 25 years, developing unique programs and approaches for his clients. He is the author of an upcoming new book called Safe to Great, The New Psychology of Leadership. And I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about how a growth mindset based on psychological safety and lead to organizational transformation. So, Skip, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's good to meet you, and uh, and I'm really excited to talk about the new book. Uh, and and uh, it's an area that I think is really important. Um, 
psychological safety is a big part of something. We've had guests on talking about that, but I like the idea of combining the two, which is the growth mindset and psychological safety. So I'm curious to see how that fits in an organizational standpoint, but we're going to get into that a little bit. But before we get started, I just want to ask you one thing as I'm preparing for this discussion. One of the things I noticed that you said is uh, that people first is your mantra for success in business leadership and organizational change. And so uh, that sort of right away sort of triggered me because that, that's a big part of what I talk about. So why are people, in your opinion, so important to business success? Well, I don't think that's ever changed. It's It's been the case, whether it be in, in uh, an engineering organization and customer service or whether it be on a you know, a military organization, it's got to do with the people, their commitment, their ability to collaborate together, their creativity that gets things done. Uh, and, you know, I, I, when we say people first, it's probably a bit obvious, but, but in reality, in organizations, often decisions are made with other things in mind. And sometimes that's okay, you know, but in principle, you know, particularly now, if we're looking at some of the economic decisions and challenges that businesses are facing, we're trying to remind people that people, you know, should, you know, come first here. And and that can mean customers too. I think it can mean, you know, customers and uh, our employees, but it can also mean the societies that we're working in. I think when we've got such big transitions currently, you know, the inflation crisis, so many things going on. Companies, governments, et cetera, still need to think about, are we looking after people and creating that safety that enables them to do great work? That's a little bit of the idea. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, uh, I in my first book, I said that leadership is a people business. And, and really, at the end of the day, it's it's you know you know a motivating group of people to do difficult things and 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 we sometimes get distracted with all the bells and whistles of leadership uh if you look at the average mba program it teaches you everything from marketing to accounting to to sales to operations but we sort of forget people sometimes in that uh in that training so but at the end of the day it's going to be people that are going to help get you your results at the end of the day yeah so I love that. I love that approach. I love that idea that it's your mantra. So that's why you, that's why I was excited to have you on the show. Um, you know, one of the things too I was going to ask you. A lot of people have sort of speculated and talked about the idea of the future of work. Where do you see things headed? You know, after the after the pandemic, I saw a, kind of a market shift in the way. Um, Companies operated the way they treated people, and we're starting to see that is sort of continuing in now in the future. So, what's your thought is in terms of the future of work? There are four big things happening. One is absolutely the, the arrival of smart machines, and I call this sort of like what we call the globotics age. That's not the term I came up with, but I talk about it in the book, but. In reality, it's us adapting to what is in principle a 25 to 30% increase in productivity achievable via smart machines, particularly in sort of white collar work, right? That's really big. We've never seen anything like it. Um, and I think, funnily enough, since I wrote the book, you know, ChatGPT sort of really took the world by storm. So some of the, the visions that, that a lot of writers about the future of the work have been talking about have really sort of like, now we get it, right? It's like, this thing can really, this can really change things. And of course, we, you know, both you and I have had careers long enough to see a lot of technology come and go, and, and some of it's become you know, what we do every day. 
this is this is quite different and it is really substantial um so that's a really big change and it's going to change a lot there's a lot of a potential disruption to a lot of people who work in offices particularly offices around the world particularly in America and in Europe where there's a very very large middle class that that are going to have to reinvent themselves and do it within a very short period of time that's one Number two is, you know, this green transformation. And, you know, whether you believe in the science or not, um, there's a lot of transformation in business models happening. We're also seeing all sorts of, you know, if we look at some of the changes in the American market, you know, on onshoring uh, is changing the way supply chains work. Um, we can see a lot of changes in how energy use works. No matter what we want to talk about, energy use in business is going to change a lot, but in our societies, it's going to change too. And this is a big transformation. And Making sure that it doesn't have negative outcomes for a lot of individuals is pretty important. So that those are those are big things. We're going to see a big change in or a big market for care, uh, what I call the age of care, and, and care understood as you know looking after people. Uh, we see a generation. We've got an older generation that does need a lot of looking after, and that's going to continue for quite some time. It has to be done by a smaller current generation, and that that demographic is continuing. I was talking to an American university. Uh, actually only two days ago, and they said that the numbers of university entrants are just falling simply because the generations are getting smaller. Mm. So this is a real issue. Um, the final piece would be a, hopefully what I call the digital enlightenment. We have to learn that what the computer, what Facebook, what social media is telling us isn't always the truth, isn't always in our best interest. And we have to learn the critical cyber skills to be able to know when to turn it off, when to say yes, uh, you know, when to say no. And and this is only increasing because we're only really now understanding what tech companies were able to build without a lot of regulation, without a lot of understanding from the consumer side. And we're going to have to change that because the power of these tools, particularly when we put AI on top, is very, very concerning. And so I'm hoping that, you know, we in our companies and our children, we develop these cyber critical skills to be able to make. So we, we keep our, our, our right to choose. So we know what a choice really is. And I think that will be important in the coming years. So they're the four things, you know, it's, it's around smart machines, the green, the green age, the caring age, and what I call the digital enlightenment. Interesting. I think that last piece is really interesting. You and I are similar ages. And so we grew up at a time when there wasn't social media, there wasn't internet. And, and, and so for us, maybe it might be even easier to turn it off because we like, I know what life is like without it. Right. So I'm easy, I'm able to turn it off, but I think that what I'm seeing in my, my children and I'm seeing with young people in my workforce is that it's, it's much harder for them because it's been part of their lives from, from birth that it's harder for them to turn it off. It is a big part of their lives. And I think that's, Definitely uh, more, more, it's going to be a bigger, bigger challenge as we go forward. And I like, like what you said in terms of there's, <laughs> there's more to what's happening there than anyone ever suspected. And I think that's, uh, that's, and it's, and it's, you know, in fact, it's manipulating us. And so that's a really important yeah. uh, topic. So I like the fact that you brought that up because I think that is. Can a, I just say, you know, I just say too, that if we look historically, when radio first came, it, it drove, well, in fact, it drove World War II because radio was a very central part of how, you know, in Germany, they managed to create a society that didn't really know what was going on around. So they used that. 
and we had to regulate it. And, and television was the same. We, it became so powerful in the 50s and 60s that you know it had to be you know regulated. And we'll see the same need with this. It just that the the way these technologies to permeate our life is completely is a complete. It, it's not even close to what radio or television did to you and I. They are quite different right. league. Anyway, just a little historical perspective. You stack, yeah, you stack AI on top of that, and you're like, you know, you, you could really get messed up. So I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. And, it needs to be just like anything else. Uh, it it has so much great potential, but it also has potential for harm too, and that's why it needs to be uh, regulated yeah. and made sure that that it's, well, it's actually not regulated. The tech yeah. is regulated. The people who use it. I mean, yeah. it's a bit like everyone says AI, this AI. That's AI is not the problem. It's the bad actors that that's are it. using it. That's the problem. Um, you know, it's North Korea and 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 a whole lot of other people who are our problem, right? Absolutely. So <laughs> it's regulating the bad actor and, and the people who want to either rip us off or or, or, or take away our freedoms. That they're, they're the ones we need to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree. So you have a brand new book coming out. It because this comes out in September, right? If, if I'm not correct, if, yeah, I'm mistaken. Yeah, and it's called Safe to Great: The New Psychology of Leadership. So. What's the big idea be behind this new book? In a world saturated by big ideas, um, <laughs> I'd be humble to say that, that, you know, I felt that, you know, back in about 2015, 2016, when I started looking at psychological safety and growth mindset, both those concepts spoke to me. Um, and and obviously the success of Sachin at Microsoft is, has given growth mindset as a concept a, a real boost. I think we're seeing safe sorry, uh, psychological safety, I think it's got a little bit to do with the fact that that some of the things that have happened in our societies and our workplaces, you know, COVID and then the post-COVID craziness that we've had, people are worried, you know, um, and it's an anxiety in our, in our employees and in our societies that is not helpful. So I think this, I think the word or the phrase psychological safety is connecting with a lot of people, particularly with, you know, the mental health questions that we have, Right. So it has a societal and a business context. Amy Edmondson made it made it famous with uh, with her work around fearless organisations, and I and I think these concepts. I just felt they 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 belong together. They are two slightly different ideas, and I don't want to get too technical about it. But it's got a little bit to do with the fact that Amy Edmondson imagined an idea about how do we create, you know, something in between us. Because what she talks about a psychological safety is a bit like a crew on a ship, right? You create something that happens between us that makes this particular crew or this particular watch just function a lot better, right? And uh, that's what psychological safety is. It's something that happens between us. If you take the work of Carol Dweck in like gross mindset, she's talking like a learning theory. It's about how do I maximize my ability to adapt, adjust, and realize my potential. And so if you combine those two together, I sort of came up with the idea, well, isn't isn't growth mindset to not just me realizing my own potential? Isn't it realizing the potential of my crew, of my, of my shift? You know, growth must be seen as something we do as a team. I mean, there's so there's almost no work that you can imagine that isn't collaborative. So I felt that we needed a growth mindset concept that was more collaborative in the same way that psychological safety is. And I think. You know, I've done a lot of work over the years with sort of like studying both what we call dysfunctional and functional teams of leadership. So I wanted to bring a critical approach. When it says the new psychology, it's sort of understanding that we need to be 
careful about over-individualizing leadership and and teamwork. You've got to watch that we haven't turned everyone into sort of like working by themselves, for themselves kind of world, that they are very dependent on on creating great relationships to succeed. And and I want us to reconceptualize growth mindset as a more relational idea. And, and that links into because psychological safety is fundamentally already that. So I felt they go well together. So if we have psychological safety, we have the foundation to create growth and growth understood as bringing the best out of myself, but also bringing the best out in others. Because the relational potential is the, the most important. I mean, your, your years as a leader would have, you know, I'm sure revealed to you that that what you know, I might be five percent better per day if I focus on my own performance, but my organization can be fifty percent better if I focus on improving the performance of others. And, and that's what I wanted to build into the growth mindset idea and and take it from a bit of a learning thing about university students to being an idea that we could really apply in the workplace about real leadership. And so that's what I've been studying and working on, turned into the book. You know, I feel there's something there's there's some something new in it. Um, I think I've tried to couch it in the world of the the future that we described and talked about just now, because um, I think we do need more care, and we need to think that companies are going to have to look after their their where their where their customers are and where their employees are a little more than we're we're used to, because if we don't have healthy communities and we don't where our customers and consumers are, we're not going to have a business. <laughs> mm, that makes a lot of sense. Well, one thing I think of when I think of psychological safety is that, you know, I've been in an organization where there was fear. So fear of um, being fired, fear of making a mistake, fear of being demoted. And, you know, when you have an organization based on fear, it, I always say it's a stagnant organization. In other words, everyone is afraid to stick their neck out. So they're not willing to take the chances, take risks, do things that have never been done before. But when you have an organization, when you have a this uh, this uh, psychological safety is in place where you're you're almost encouraged to be experimental and try and learn and maybe you fail but you learn through that experience. The, when I've been in organizations like that, that we've always had tremendous growth because we're willing to try new things and do things that are different. And so I think that the idea that um, when you're in a psychologically safe uh, situation, you're you're going to have more growth. Sort of to me. When I, you know, when I, the two go together. So they, they make sense mm. to me just because of my experience, past experience and seeing organizations that were high in psychological safety were also high growth organizations. They were willing to take chances and ones that weren't were, were ones that were stagnant and, and also losing, uh, uh, you know, business because they were unwilling to take chances. And so why do you think that that message sometimes sometimes doesn't get to leaders the idea of the importance of psychological safety well the key reason if you look at amy edmondson's sort of foundation research she was looking at surgical units in american hospitals and asking the question is how come certain surgical units that were successful understood as not killing people and not getting a lot of insurance claims against them how come they reported a lot more errors? Doesn't seem to make sense. So high performance on the one hand, lots of errors on the on the other hand. Okay, that seems a bit strange. The point isn't is that psychological safety really is saying to us that we're making mistakes all the time. We're missing opportunities all the time. We're just not talking about them. Mm -hmm. That's it. And the key reason in surgical units why you know the the doctor and the surgical team don't share information openly is 
a status or hierarchical difference between the surgeon and the surgical team. And hierarchy uh, is one of the main drivers of low levels of psychological safety. Um, and if you look at, and I've done a lot of studies of famously the American aircraft carrier safety. Um, it's a bit of a pet topic of mine. I've never been on one, but I certainly read a lot about the studies of it, is how do you create safety on what is potentially the most dangerous airfield in the world? And the American Navy has an incredible record here, right? Uh, ever since the Enterprise accident in the in the 60s. Um, and it's got a lot to do with thinking very hard about how do you create relationships on a flight deck where people are observing unusual events, are willing to share that. How do we, when we change watches, do we hand information over? Do we, what we call heedful interactions? You know, do we listen to each other? Do we ask good questions? Do we invite people to share with things, not the usual routine things, but the unusual things? What kills you on aircraft carriers is the unusual. And and staying alert and awake is, is super, and you can learn so much from that particular space. I write about it briefly in the book. So, so I think it's that really highlighting that point that you can have hierarchy and the military has that. But to create a really successful, you know, crew or watch or whatever that happens to be, you need to remove a lot of that attitude and 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 really focus on the task, which can be safety, it can be mission success, and that that actually reduces that status difference, and it means we're actually in this together, working to solve a solution. I can't speak not having been in the military, but studying it just shows that great military teams also eliminate. There's going to be hierarchy, of course. But don't exaggerate it because when we exaggerate it, we don't get safety. And that's what we want uh, in a team or a factory or a sales team or, you know, wherever we want to see it. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. This episode is brought to you by Jeremy Clevenger Fitness. As a high-performing leader, you know that leadership isn't about telling people what to do. It's about leading by example. And for most people, the one area that they're lacking when it comes to leading by example is their health and fitness. By improving your health and fitness, every other area of your life improves. But how do you get and stay fit as a busy leader? Well, you do what you've always done. You hire the best person for the job. Don't struggle on your own. Put Jeremy Clevenger on your team. Jeremy will work with you to take your physique, mindset, nutrition, habits and more to the next level with his step-by-step all-inclusive coaching program. Now I've worked with Jeremy for the past year and I'm in the best shape of my life. If you want to step up your game, reach out to Jeremy at apexperformancesystems.com to find out more and get your initial consultation scheduled with him today. This episode is brought to you by the Sasquatch Flag Company. The Sasquatch Flag Company is a family-owned business in New England that builds hand-carved American flags from seasoned white pine. Each flag is hand 
hand-built, and each star on the flag is hand-hammered and chiseled. No two flags are alike. They offer a variety of flag designs to honor the police, military, firefighters, dispatchers, and search-and-rescue personnel, to name a few. These stunning handmade flags look great in an office, a studio, the back porch, or above the fireplace mantle. They make the perfect gift for the veteran, first responder, or patriot in your life. Now, I love these flags, and I've been giving them as gifts for years, and I was a customer long before they became a sponsor of the show. I can't recommend them enough. So if you're looking for that perfect, uniquely American make gift to give away or if you want to treat yourself go to sasquatchflags.com and get your order in today yeah and i think to be able to you know create an organization like that where uh hierarchy you know this hierarchy will will prevent people from speaking up because that's a big problem is is having that kind of uh you know every idea is important every person in this team is important your ideas are are essential Mm. is creating that environment where people feel that they can speak up when something is wrong or when they feel something is uh not uh aligned to the mission of the organization or the goals of the organization one of the things i see is in the past sort of five years maybe even longer but i've seen you've seen a rise of, of stakeholder um uh influence on organizations and what i mean by stakeholders is employees uh, shareholders, customers are being a lot more vocal when they see things that they don't agree with. And I see, you've seen, we've seen mass protests for companies like Google and Facebook, where their employees are saying, "Hey, you're not standing up to the values that we that you say that you're going to do." And so it's kind of interesting that. Um, and so it's to me, I think you know, when we talk about the future of work. Part of it is is that those days of the boss is up here and the people are down here. And, and, and I think, I think now it's a team and we've got to, and, and I think it's more of uh, us working together towards accomplishing a goal, which is why leadership is now much more important than say it was in, you know, in the turn of the, you know, when we were doing the industrial revolution, where it was sort of a top-down management division of labor kind of mindset. So I think at this point, you know, stakeholders have a lot of influence in the organization, much more than they had maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I think if we say, look at some of the companies that have struggled recently and Boeing would be one of them. Uh, if we look at the studies of that, it's been, a, unfortunately, a shift away from foundationally, historically buying had a safety culture. And this is not just understood as a like a psychological safety, but also talking about a physical safety culture. And when we see organizations sort of losing track of the need to create a place which is safe for, um, you know, for the workers and safe for the people who use your product, in this case, people hopping on a 737 MAX, when you lose, you lose, you get your values wrong and you start getting more concerned about being competitive against, um, you know, Airbus. This is that story that 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 when companies lose track and then, then we start getting the cover-up cultures that we don't want. Mm. And again... How do you solve that? Is getting back to the to the folk because Al Coa did it famously back in the the eighties, which was to sort of like turn that company around. Because all more stakeholders are interested in creating safety and creating good outcomes. When you get stakeholders aligned around that, you can create fantastic organisations. And certainly, the Al Coa turnaround from nineteen eighty eight on, onwards was driven by that aligning all stakeholders, particularly employees and unions, etc., around the idea creating safe minds and safe products. And I think that, that that's, again, focusing on what we do rather than on attitude, on ego and status. We always need to keep doing that. You know, what are we here to do? We're here to create a safe flight deck 
and to get these aircraft up and down safely. That's what we're here to do. That's our priority. And and take the ego out of it is is part of that role. And in the factory is exactly the same space. We're here to make great products. Tell me what the problems are with the products or the factory line. Let's make it better. And yeah. that's healthy. That creates healthy workplaces. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, you say, uh, there's four different mindsets and, uh, there are unique pathways to this growth mindset. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah. I mean, it comes from the Carol Drake kind of created the dichotomy between fixed mindset and growth mindset. Fixed being that people kind of get stuck thinking that they can't really learn and things like that. Um, but when you look at it, it's not really quite as simple as that because and I won't go into the long research foundation, but essentially I think there are three what I call protective mindsets because in principle, we're trying to protect ourselves and that's the opposite of growth, right? We protect ourselves in three ways, one of which is I call the hippo or the com uh, competitive controlling uh, mindset. I call it a hippo because it's the most dangerous animal in Africa and when it poops, it throws its tail around and all the poop goes everywhere. It, these these are people who, if you say fixed mindset, but they're people who in general want to be controlling, coercive. They want to be independent and sort of like dominate the people around them. They protect themselves by making it all about them, about you know their ego and and being in control, etc. So that's one mindset. We have another mindset which I call the snail or the complying, complacent mindset. But the snail is different. They they find their safety, they find their um, protection in having great relationships or being nice to people, being friendly, following the rules, not sticking their neck out. And then we finally have what I call the clam mindset, which is critical skeptical. This is a very resistant, very sort of antisocial, very pessimistic, negative um, mindset. And, and they're making themselves safe by being perhaps self-reliant, working by themselves, but also by, in principle, you know, criticizing or undermining progress, new ideas and growth. That's how they feel safe because they don't really want to take risks. So I use the three animals to sort of bring some humor to discussing what are relatively dysfunctional approaches to your own life, but as a leader, fairly dysfunctional. I mean, the the correlations to the performance of critical skeptical leaders, you know, clams and hippos is pretty bad. You know, you might look like you're in control. You might look smart. But in reality, you don't drive very high performance because what happens is you undermine collaboration, you undermine confidence. And, and those two things are extremely important in the crew on a ship or in a factory. If people don't feel confident about their role or themselves, they don't do a great job. And so these are things that are really important. One final piece around it would be that a lot of people think psychological safety is about being nice to people. And that's what I call the snail. That's not true. If you want high psychological safety, you need a combination. You need to be strong on task, you know, direction, accountability, but you also need to be strong on relationship in terms of building confidence and coaching, developing people. You need to have both aspects. And when you get those two, I call those the growth leadership principles, and that's what I call a dolphin. So a dolphin for me is that symbol of uh, a leader who's able to be strong on task, strong on relationship, do both those things. And that's unusual in leaders. It's it's usually you'll find leaders that that are, you know have some people skills or they have some more sort of like task skills. But bringing those together is where we see the real growth. That's where we see the high performance coming from. And that's what my research is, has has reconfirmed. It's also something we've known for some time in leadership. I, I'm pretty sure in them in in your training, both in the military and elsewhere, 
you've talked about those things that, you know, you need to set direction, but you also need to build the confidence and skills that people can, you know, deliver on that mission and deliver on that direction that you've set. Yeah, I think what I love what you just say as far as the dolphin is concerned is it 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 matches what I've written in my books too, which is it's about the people and the mission. And I think yeah. we when we focus too much on the mission and we ignore the people, you get yourself in trouble as a leader. If you focus too much on the people and not the mission, you get yourself in trouble as a leader. It's the and, yeah. it's the connecting between yeah. the two that is 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 essential. And and, and like you said, it's a rare leader that can can take those both together. And I think, you know, sometimes I used to always think I was a servant leader that, you know, identified best with that as a servant leader. But then I realized that's not who I am at all, because I've always said the people and the mission. So I've not been a lot of servant leaders are people focused and there maybe there's snail, uh, you know, maybe an example in yours. But I like to think of myself more as a transformational leader, someone that is trying to help people reach their full potential and the business to reach its full potential growth in the people and in the, in the mission and in the organization. And I think that's where it sounds like the dolphins leading more to that end, which is this idea of, of having both of those skill sets. Yeah. Yeah. When we take a lot of concepts like around servant-based leadership, which in itself is a really good idea, you know, humility and leadership, you know, if we take Jim Collins who, you know, in his famous book, Good to Great, which inspires my book, Safe to Great, you know, we talk about this, what does it what is what does we really need to develop? But in general, a lot of leadership theory is designed for a certain type of leader, which is what I call the hippo. In other words, leaders that have a fairly strong ego, you know, like to control, like to dominate, et cetera. So why do we teach them servant-based leadership? Is because they need to develop skills mm. where they're more empathetic, they're more social, they're more supportive, they build confidence in others, they bring out the best in others because they lack that. So I get that. The problem is that there's not, not all leaders are hippos, right? There's quite a lot of leaders that come into leadership with very strong people skills. Um, and in that case, servant-based leadership is not the right advice. What we're looking for is not vulnerability. We're looking for assertiveness. We're looking at their ability to focus on the mission, uh, to use your language. So that's why I said that it's it's somewhat misleading to say, one, there's only one kind of fixed mindset. I think we need to consider there are different pathways into this. And likewise, for the critical skeptical, I mean, Satya Nadella and Microsoft talked about the know-it-all, which is kind of what I mean by the clam, right? And he wanted to create learn-it-alls. So in his organization, he had a real focus on this, this development path for, for what I say called clams, critical skeptical types. And, and this is another example of why we need to have a little bit, that's why it's a new psychology of leadership. We have to have a little bit more understanding that it's not one size fits all because the pathway to growth depends on where you start, right? Mm, so yeah. I, I think your, your comments around servant-based leadership make a lot of sense. I, I think there's a lot of leaders where servant-based leadership is not really helping them. I don't want you to be more humble and I don't want you to be more empathetic. You're perhaps hypersensitive to what other people think. What I need you to do is to believe in the mission and to hold people accountable for those important goals that are within that mission. And, and that's just as important. So strong on task, you know, strong on mission, you know, and strong on people. And, and that is really the essence of, of what growth leadership should be. Mm, I love it. I love it. And Jim Collins, I'm glad to see that Jim Collins had an influence on you. Certainly a big influence on my life when I read about level five leadership and humility and fierce resolve combined together. And I went, yeah. holy cow, there's there's that model. I didn't realize that was a model. Yeah. I'm like, because I always, you know, kind of coming up through, you know, being my age, it was always like the 
the Jack Welshes, the, the big personalities, those those are the leaders yeah. you wanted to try to emulate. But it turns out these 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 kind of quiet uh, but fierce, you know, leaders were the ones that were driving the growth and getting the performance out of their organizations. This fierce, I'm not going to give up, we're going to get the mission done, but also not big on themselves. And that was always just like, it blew my mind when I first read uh, uh, yeah. uh, Jim Collins' work. And I think that is, uh, it seems like you're t- you're touching on that in this book. You're bringing that out in a, in, a, in a different way, using the language of today, which is psychological safety, growth mindset. We've seen, yeah. we've heard these two. You're bringing them together and saying, this is what it looks like. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure everyone really learned enough from, from Jim Collins' point, uh, to be honest. I mean, it was a hugely popular book. But you're right. We've seen a lot of leaders, you know, fairly ego-driven, et cetera. Uh, you mentioned one of them. I mean... I'm, I'm doing a presentation this week. I mean, I've been reading the, the sort of the secret story of the iPhone, which I think is also very relevant because Steve Jobs, everyone probably says, oh, I'd love to be like Steve Jobs. And I say, well, true, but there was probably a, you know, a, a very, very um, growth-minded uh, person around or persons around um, Steve Jobs to make him successful that were focused on, you know, bringing the iPhone out there and developing the team to be able to achieve. Because the interesting thing is that the, the research has shown that in emails, Steve Jobs wanted to kill the iPhone when it initially came to him. He didn't believe in the idea. And it was only the persistence of his development team to you know, really convince him over a really long period of time for that matter that it was actually the right way forward. It's a different interpretation of the story. And unfortunately, so much of our leadership gets caught in heroes. And and we love them. We have a, a you know, we have such a huge appetite for it. But if we look at some of the the leaders that have done some of the most difficult things possible, they often have enormous amounts of, you know, we could take Eisenhower. Why did they choose him? <laughs> because he can he can make it work on D-Day. Um, you know, these were important choices historically for some of the most significant events. Uh, Ernst Shackleton, the famous Antarctic, uh, <laughs> absolutely amazing. But his story is a story of great, you know, fearsome skill and a passion for what he did, uh, you know, extraordinary skill, but also a, a sense of humanity, a sense of, 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 you know, humbleness of taking care of his crew in, in a way that, in fact, basically his attempts to try to save his crew probably shortened his life in reality. Right. But one of the great survival stories of all time, uh, without, without, uh, there's no real comparison like, it's like getting stuck on Mars nowadays, I suppose. Right, right. 1915, uh, with no radio down in the Antarctic, that's not a place where you want to get stuck. Right, right. Um, Humble, fierce leaders. I like what you say is that we tend to worship these heroes or worship these, you know, figures in history. I think it's great to learn from them, but I I always, I, I say this a lot is don't worship your heroes, be the hero in your world. I mean, that's, you know, we, you know, everyone, like you said, there's circumstances that these people, uh, uh, you know, history comes together and decisions are made and these people become great. But it's, it's, you know, the, the story could have been written completely differently if another person was in that position. So I always say, like, you're in a unique position as a leader. Be great. Be the hero in your world. Be the influence in your world. Grow your organization. You know, empower your people. Do something really amazing in your sphere of influence. And and I think that... Yeah. Uh, the more we do that, the more we get, you know, not get caught up in just worshiping these online. I, sometimes they're online heroes, I call them, uh, is to focus on your own life. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can learn. I mean, people often, I get often this question in in 
keynotes and stuff like that, you know, who do you look up to? And I say, well, look, I think one, there's just so much spin when it comes to, you know, whether it be Sachin Adela or Jack Welsh, et cetera, what's the truth and what's not the truth is very difficult to determine. I think there are mosaics. I think you can sort of say there are certain aspects of certain types of leaders that inspire yeah. me. Um, you know, Elon Musk is a bit hard to avoid at the moment. You know, I don't really, I don't really want the whole package, but I think there are certain aspects of his ability to explain a vision that are exceptional because he's not the normal communicator. He's quite nerdy and quite, yeah. you know, and I think that can give confidence to people who are business leaders with a great idea, but but not necessarily that sort of amazing communicator. I think he can inspire people to say, okay, just watch what he's doing here. Mm. Steve Jobs too. I mean, you know, he learned to be a good communicator, but didn't start off like that. So yeah. I think there are stories here about people you know, whether we use CEOs, they're always a bit dangerous because of you know the spin. But but in principle, I think we can t- take learning from from people like that and say, let's emulate th- that bit of it rather than saying they're amazing at everything. Because I'm not sure either Steve Jobs or Elon Musk are amazing at everything. I think there's a couple of areas we might want to tweak yep. a little. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would agree with that entirely for sure. And I've been critical of Steve Jobs and some of the things that he did, but uh, uh, that's another topic. But uh, let, let's uh, maybe just wrap up. What, what final message from this book, that, and, and maybe some other work that you're doing if you want to, but that you want to leave with our listeners? Because we've really just scratched the surface on this book, when, and we're going to put links there and uh, get people to uh, go to that book. But uh, what are some, what's the final message you want to leave with our listeners? Well, you and I started this conversation by talking about giving back. Yeah. Um, and that's my journey too, in the sense that, you know, I mean, I don't want to be patronizing. There's nothing worse when you get to our age and sort of telling people, you know, this is how you should do it, et cetera. I would really like to to use the experience and the ability to to sort of like see things early, which I do have. I've shown over the years to be able to say, how can I help create some pathways forward here that are adequately optimistic, but based in some critical thinking about the mess we've got because we've got a bit of a mess. Yes. Um, and so I'm critical, but I'm hopeful. Um, and I want to create a pathway that and and lend whatever moral, physical support I can to helping a lot of Americans and a lot of Europeans and whoever else that happens to be, a lot of Australians, to be able to find success in this very, very complicated world we've been, we are semi-creating, right? Um, that we create leaders that aren't just taking the Kool Aid, that 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 can grasp the, the 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 you know suffering for that matter, the anxiety, the concerns that a lot of their employees have, and provide hope, provide direction, provide confidence, give them that way to lead into this what will be some of the most difficult transformations we've seen in our business lifetime. So, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with the book. That's why the next book is about how to lead in green transformations, you know, what I call great to green. But right now, it's really about getting this message out there that, that safety has to be understood differently. Psychological safety is a big term. And we, if we get that right, we can create the growth. We can learn. We can be agile. We can learn to work with these smart machines, be co-robotic, all that that we're going to have to do. At the same time, protect enough that that our societies don't unravel on us which we we cannot afford 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and I and I support you in this mission because I think it's really critical. We are going to be going through some changes that we've never seen before. And the pace yeah. of change is so much faster than we've ever seen before. And the human mind is only, is not evolving as fast as technology no. and the world is. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be an a, a important time in, in leadership. Uh, and so this is really essential uh, for us to be able to keep up, to, you know, for leaders to be able to keep up speed with what's going on. And that's why this book is a great book to get started in that area, to start thinking about sure. the idea of, um, uh, of psychological safety and the growth mindset, bringing those two together. The book is called Safe to Great, The New Psychology of Leadership. It's going to be out in September. So, Skip, how can people find out more about you and this new book? You can pre-order it on Amazon and other bookstores, um, which I'd really appreciate because it would help, you know, the whole getting noticed in this world. Um, the algorithms love pre-orders, so I'm, I've got some things about how to support that. But you can find me at, at skip-byman.com, and uh, you can hear more about what I'm doing. You know, I'm very willing to lend a hand wherever it's possible to to create safe. You know, what I call making organisations safe for great work. And I'd be very happy to talk and share the ideas and help people get moving on this because you know that's what we need to do. And so you can find me there. Pre-order the book, uh, order the book, read the book, share it, you know, and that would I really appreciate. But most importantly, start living, you know, start thinking about how can we be challenged a little bit, be a little critical about how we think about leadership and at the same time, really start thinking about how do we care for the people that we are, you know, we are leading. Now, fantastic. Great message, great final message for all our listeners. Uh, and we'll put links in the show notes for all of Skip's resources. And again, I do encourage you to check, check this book out, Safe to Great, The New Psychology of Leadership. Uh, pre-orders are happening right now. We'll put a link to the pre-order so that you can find it. And I really highly encourage you to continue to learn, develop yourself as a leader, get ready for the change that's happening every day out there. And this is one way that you can uh, prepare your mind for the changes that are about to happen. Skip, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I want to thank you for, for this book and uh, just the message that you brought to our listeners. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing all of this insight. Real pleasure, John. Thank you. Thank you again. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all time? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling styles, representation, the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. 
Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hour.